And so before, before Alan comes to speak to us, let me read the, the Bible passage that we're looking at uh, this morning. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want to uh, grab a Bible, there's some spare ones at the back that you'd be very welcome to, to have a look at. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen now. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and starting at verse 1. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. She prayed. Lord God, we've just been acknowledging who you are, what you've done for us. You are the, the one God, the only God, and we worship you. And Lord, we, we want to uh, recognize this morning, Lord, that this uh, passage from the Bible is inspired by you. You gave it to your servant Paul uh, to write to, in his letter to the Corinthians. And Lord, uh, 2,000 years later, here it is being read to us too. And so we pray that as Alan uh, comes to speak, as he comes to dig deeper into this uh, passage, that Lord, you would speak through him, speak into our lives, and Lord, teach us what you would have us taught. Lord God, we know that this word is your word and it changes lives. And we pray that that will be the case here in this place this morning. Amen.
Thank you, Andy. So um, we're going through uh, Paul's letters uh, to the Corinthians, uh, Corinthian church, and uh, we have reached chapter 8 today. Uh, Paul uh, began, uh, firstly, uh, by calling this church the Ecclesia, which means the called out assembly of God, that is in Corinth. Now, Paul started this church and spent uh, over a year discipling them. So he knew them and their situation well. And Paul firstly then reminds them and us that the church is God's called out assembly. Now, they are physically in Corinth, but they are called out by God to belong to God, to be sanctified by Christ and called together saints. And Paul was writing to them because he wasn't in Corinth. He was in Ephesus around 55 AD. And indeed, Paul had already written to them before. An earlier letter that we no longer have, uh, but we can guess what he might have said. Because Corinth was what we would call a worldly place. It was actually an important, busy, trading port city, uh, full of well-off people, cosmopolitan merchants and traders, and it had the entertainment of a big city, astounding architecture, or active sports, busy social life, and also rich in arts and craft. You know, the sort of thing any city today would like to have. But it was a dog-eat-dog -dog society. People pursued success, wealth, status, admiration by stepping on others. And most of all, there were multiple temples to just about every Greek god. And the most famous for Corinth was Aphrodite, goddess of love, with over a thousand temple prostitutes. So you can guess what worship in Corinth is about. And indeed, the name Corinth was a byword in the Roman Empire for loose morality. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, in and among all this, that it is the called out gathering of God. Yes, you're located in Corinth, but you're called out of it. And evidently, there was still a lot of Corinth in the church. And Paul writes now a further letter to them. So as we went through the first few chapters in this last week, uh, week day by day, uh, we see Paul dealing with people, championing about their knowledge and wisdom, and actually it's human wisdom. And then there were these factions lining up behind different personalities and people have their favorite preachers or favorite leaders, much like the world today would have favorite celebrities or influencers. And chapters 5 and 6, well, Paul had to deal with the lack of church discipline. And they had lawsuits within the church. And they accommodated sexual immorality in the church. 
In fact, it was incest that even the wider pagan society would look down on. And somehow, and maybe because they had some twisted misunderstanding of freedom in Christ, then tolerance, diversity, inclusion has somehow managed to triumph in the church over moral outrage. And those then were the early chapters. And then from um, chapter 7 on, Paul is now answering their questions. Now, we don't have their letter that they wrote, but from Paul's reply, we can have a good idea of what they asked. Uh, They had written to Paul as their founding apostle to ask him to adjudicate on certain matters. Chapter 7 yesterday was Paul Uh, Some say we should not marry like you are not. And others say it is fine. There's no prohibition. So, Paul, what say you? That was chapter 7. And now chapter 8, we get to the next question. Paul, some people here say we cannot eat meat that you buy that has previously been offered to idols in the temple. They say eating such meat will bring harm. But others of us, well, we all know that idols are just statues of stone and wood, fake. So the meat is just meat. It's fine to eat. So Paul, what say you? So Paul could give a simple yes-no or eat-don't-eat answer. Um, And that would have simply, though, uh, reinforced their divisions. It would be, see, I told you so, and even now Paul agrees with me. Uh, So uh, Paul could also, actually, just repeat the decision of the Jerusalem Council some seven years earlier, which was, abstain from such meat. So not absolute prohibition, but abstain. Stay away from, hold off, be done with. But the issue here is not so much the many social gatherings where you actually eat a meal at the temples. The issue here is that a lot of normal meat on general sale in the ordinary markets comes through the temple system where the animal is firstly offered to idols there. And that meat is now in the market and it looks just like any ordinary meat. So it's not so easy to actually abstain from meat that has previously been offered to idols unless you completely stop eating meat altogether. So the Corinthians were divided on this. And Paul shows them the principles to consider. So these are the, then the four parts to Paul's answer. And we'll go through them one by one. So the first of these, verses 1 to 3, uh, is the place of knowledge. Now, Paul firstly agrees with knowledge. Who wouldn't? And possibly the Corinthians have used a common uh, catchphrase. So Paul uh, repeats the phrase, all of us have knowledge. Paul says, yes, 
We know that. That is true. But Paul disagrees with the attitude that it is said in, because it is said with a sense of superiority. Yes, to know is better than to be ignorant. But you see, just what that knowledge has done, it has led to pride. The knowledge has puffed the person up like a balloon, puffed up, looks bigger. But really, what's the substance? Well, it is just air. So such a person who prides in their knowing the right things and in having the right teaching, well, that knowledge has merely puffed them up. And Paul contrasts knowledge with love. Not because we have to choose one or the other, but because more important than pure knowledge, which purely puffs up, more important is love, agape, which actually builds up. It is not just whether we have the right knowledge, it's also whether that knowledge is being used for the building up of others rather than tearing them down. Now, knowledge must be deployed subservient to love. And actually, ultimately, we read, it is not whether we know the right things. Actually, what matters in the end is whether God knows us. And that comes by, well, not because of how much we know, uh, but because we love God. You see, if Paul has said in that verse 3 there, so if he had said, if anyone loves God, he knows God, now that would be quite something, because it would mean we demonstrate we know God by loving him. But Paul actually said, when what he said is actually far, far bigger thing. You see, if, if I had been or seen, say, Nelson Mandela in the street, now what would be bigger? That I know who he is, or that he sees me and he comes over, he says, hello, how are you? Not a long time no see. You know, as important as us knowing God is, it is infinitely more important that God knows us. And that is what Paul says here. That is what Paul says comes from loving him. So Paul's first principle is, and we evangelicals particularly should sit up, Paul says, however better or more full or more correct is our knowledge, we must exercise that knowledge through love. Love is what actually builds up. Knowledge itself merely puffs up. So while we are fully right to be convinced that the idols are just fake, and so meat that has been through some ceremony in front of such metal statue is really just ordinary meat, yet... How we behave and what we do while having that knowledge is still important. That is Paul's first principle. We must act in love 
And now Paul's uh, second principle. And Paul starts by agreeing with the Corinthians, verse 4, that the statues are just pieces of metal or wood. They are not gods. Only the creator God is actually God. Using the quote here, there is no God but one. And this is the creed from the Torah, Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, even the most secular person in Israel, even today, would know. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. But Paul does not just leave it there for new covenant followers. Verse 6, Paul says, Our God is one. Our God who is Father and Son and Spirit, although Spirit is not mentioned in this verse. And now in English, when we look at that, we might think Paul is calling the Father God, while Jesus, Paul only calls Lord. But actually, Paul is writing in Greek, and the word used for Lord, kuros, is exactly the word used for Yahweh in the Greek Old Testament. So Paul is in fact calling Jesus God, while also showing Jesus is distinct to the Father, and also at the same time reinforcing that the Lord our God is one. And because the Lord our God is one, then there is no other. Yahweh alone is God. It's not like Yahweh is merely the king of the gods. No, there is only one God. And the rest, well, they are the Romans' so-called gods. And uh, yes, there are many of those. But their idols are silver and gold. Made, of by, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they can't smell. Hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Dumb dullards. So it is not like God is worried about the competition because there is no competition. They are just wannabes and pretenders wanting to take the place of God in the worship of man. But God alone is genuine. However, as dumb and as mute as idols are, it is not harmless to go worshipping them. So only two chapters on, where Paul is talking about joining in with the eating at the pagan temples. He says, even though an idol itself is not anything, yet those sacrifices are actually being offered to demons. And participating with that would mean participants with demons. The idol might be nothing, but idolatry is far from harmless. And in the West, where we say our idols are far more subtle and sophisticated than statues of metal or wood, 
Well, we ignore or downplay the demonic forces behind the Western anti-God power centers at our peril. It's not for nothing that Paul calls them rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. He's telling us these are not weak things, uh, but powerful forces with only evil intent who seek to control and rule over us. I'll give us one inch and they'll take a foot to cancel God and his word from our society. So Paul's second point here, Yahweh alone is God and there is no other. And meat that has passed through the pagan temples that's now being sold in the meat market, well, that's just meat. Uh, the pagan idol can't do anything uh, to that meat. But, but, and this is important, but not all possess this knowledge. You might have come to know the meat is just meat, and in your conscience, you are perfectly free to eat that meat, and that is good. But not all believers have come to this knowledge yet. And there are some, even though they have become believers and have the same freedom to eat, yet in their conscience, they feel that eating meat that has been through a pagan temple is somehow paying homage to the pagan idols. So when they eat, their conscience is defiled and they sin. So, both are believers, both have been saved, both have been set free, both are allowed to eat the meat, and both have God-given conscience, an inner witness to our spirit of what is right and wrong. And the second believer, whose conscience Paul here describes as weak, well, in his conscience... He is not to eat because his conscience says no. He knows Jesus is his savior that has set him free from slavery to demons. But in his conscience, if he eats for him, there is something of this going back to the old life. So for this believer, whose conscience is telling him eating that meat is not right, if he does eat, then for him it is sin. Not for everyone is it sin, but for him, eating is against his conscience, so for him, eating is sin. Now Paul turns to the believer with the strong conscience. You with the fuller knowledge. Um, you do know that God is not more impressed that you demonstrate your freedom by eating that meat? Verse 8. We are no better off with eating and no worse off if we do not eat. We do not commend ourselves to God either way. You're right. You can eat, but take care that when you exercise your rights, we do not make others stumble and sin. 
You can be merely doing what you are free to do, yes. And when a believer with a weak conscience sees you eating, especially if it's at the temple, well, will he not be emboldened against his conscience to also eat meat offered to idols? And for him to go against his conscience, that is sin. Now, all the, that the believer with the strong conscience, all he was doing was eating because he knows he can and he knows he's right. But what verse 11 says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. You see, the believer with the strong conscience was just eating. And that's okay, allowed. He was not even trying to persuade the other believer with the weak conscience to join in. He was merely himself eating. And maybe unthinkingly. And unthinkingly of anyone else. And that's the issue here. And the fourth principle, brother over self. In many ways, we would want to be the believer with the stronger conscience because he's the one with the fuller knowledge of the right things better understanding of the truth, more assured of what Jesus has done for him, and not afraid of what others might think. He's theologically sound and confident in his knowledge. But he is unthinking of others and unthinking of how what he does or say can harm others. He did not stand in the shoes of the brother with weaker conscience and try to see the consequences of his own action from that angle. So even though he is perfectly right that he can eat meat that has previously been sacrificed to idols, yet by his eating, because his brother is emboldened and encouraged to sin, he thereby destroys the weaker brother's faith, merely by eating. By doing something completely within his rights, the brother with better knowledge ends up sinning against both the weaker brother and against Christ. Jesus paid with his blood for this brother with weak conscience to build him up. And we bring him down by our unthinking action, considering only what is right for ourselves. So Paul's conclusion is, no, it should be brother over self. Brother has higher priority over my rights. If by eating uh, that makes my brother stumble, then I'll give it up altogether. His faith is more important than my rights. You see, our spiritual maturity is not by exercising what we are free to do, but rather by willing to deny ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. 
So going back to the original question where the Corinthians asked, am I not free to eat this meat? Well, Paul's answer is, what will eating do to your brother? If it's going to cause your brother to sin, then no. But if it's not going to lead a brother to sin, then eat with thanksgiving because it is deceitful spirits and teachings of demons that require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So the Corinthians' answer then is, love over knowledge, self-denial over freedom, and brother over self. Now, here would be an okay place to stop um, because we got to the end of the, the chapter. Um, but I feel we need to consider one other passage, Galatians 2. So we might know that in first century time, Jews did not freely associate with Gentiles. Gentiles are the non-Jewish people. And there was Peter, a Jew, a Jew by birth, but born again in Christ. And he had come to correctly know that he can accept Gentile believers as brothers. And so uh, he could eat with them. He can come together with them. And when he came to, when Peter came to Antioch in Syria, loads of Gentile believers there, he freely accepted them. He happily sat down and ate with the Gentile brothers. Peter knew this, that was right, and he did it. And Peter and everyone else then had good knowledge and good, strong conscience. And then a certain group of Jewish believers came from Jerusalem to visit Antioch. And at that point, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles and sat separately with just the Jews. Now, we can say this visiting group of Jews were brothers with a weaker conscience because in their conscience, uh, their conscience prevented them from eating with Gentiles. So, Peter then, should he not forego his freedom to sit with the Gentiles, so as to not cause his Jewish brothers with the weaker conscience to stumble. Yeah, you follow? Well, when Peter did this, which we can say is just looking after the Jewish brothers' weaker conscience, why then did Paul correct Peter? And the answer is in that highlighted verse 14. Because what the Jewish brothers felt to be right for them was actually against the truth of the gospel. Uh, and that's a key point. There is a limit to deferring to the weaker brother's conscience. It must never take us to go out of step with gospel truth. You see, the other extreme is legalism. Lots of rules on what you can and cannot do. You know, the Pharisees' approach. 
Legalism then uh, replaces worshipping God with obeying human rules. And we think God accepts us because of rule obeying. And here, Paul asks Peter, how can we be the body of Christ assembling to glorify God if the body cannot come together as one, but is separated? That's just against gospel truth. Those brothers' weaker conscience is not Holy Spirit-inspired. It's actually controlled by legalism, human rules. So the weaker brother's conscience does not override what God has set out. Absolutely, we should willingly forego what we are allowed for the sake of the weaker brother, but only if it does not get us to contravene God's word and settle for what is wrong. And that is an important thing to check. So, okay, come back to our passage then to wrap up. And these principles are important in our situation because our equivalent question is probably going to be different. Uh, it might be the question of drinking alcohol. Am I not allowed to drink alcohol? Am I uh, not allowed to do certain things on some designated holy days? Or whether we should eat halal meat, which after all uh, has an Islamic incantation at the slaughter of the animal. Or should we go to dinner in somebody's house or a restaurant where there's an idol on display? Or we go to a social event where there likely will end up some ungodly behavior happening. So from a standpoint of knowing what's right and what's wrong, we can make a judgment of, of that for ourselves and what we can do and do so with an absolute clear conscience, yes. But then from a standpoint of a brother with a weaker conscience who might be led to stumble because of what we have chosen to do, then Paul says, choose to forego choose to not do. We prioritize not causing the brother harm over and above enjoyment of our rights. We prioritize serving one another in love. Indeed, Paul tells the Galatians here, we use our freedom to serve one another in love. And to be honest, for many of us here, that might be a difficult thing to swallow. The culture around us is so much about our rights, our freedom of choice, and freedom to exercise our rights. Why should I be restrained by somebody else's inadequacy when all they have to do is a bit more reading and gain a bit more conviction in faith? It feels so unfair that we are set free by Christ only to be held down again by some weaker person. And that is the culture around us speaking. Remember how this letter started to the church of God, the church, the ecclesia. That word in Greek means assembly, but its literal meaning is 
called out, called out of the culture and society we are in. The church is not supposed to blend in with society and its culture and look just like our neighbors. We are supposed to have been called out of our surroundings and look, think, and behave differently to the world around us. We flock with Jesus and not the world. And Jesus teaches us to think about and prioritize the weaker brother rather than our own, our rights. And that's the big challenge to us this morning, evangelicals. Because we evangelicals champion knowing, knowing what is right. And the challenge is to place something else with even higher priority than that. And that is to use our knowledge of our freedom to serve one another out of love and in love. And in the end, it will be our love for one another that will actually show the world outside that we are true followers of Christ. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you that you prioritize us that you acted out of love, that you did not consider yourself or what you deserve, but you, for, you, you gave that up, you let go, you, forgo, you forwent all of that for us, the weaker ones, the ones who could not possibly come to our God on our own, but you gave up what is yours that we might be, re might receive and be uh, with you and be in the kingdom of God and in the family of God. Lord, help us as the ones who are in full benefit of that, the ones who have this, uh, you, everything you have given us. Help us, Lord, to have the same attitude, the same attitude to others, other believers, brothers and sisters. Lord, you acted in love. Help us to act with the same love, love that put, set ourselves to one side, and prioritize the brother and the sister. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Teach us, Lord, to do the same. Thank you that you have paid the price that we might actually now serve one another in love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.